0: Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking.
1: Hello and welcome to the 102nd edition of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast, a conversation between woodworkers. I'm Sean Wozniewski of The Corner Workshop, with me is my co-host, Diami Plotky of the Penultimate Woodshop, and today's special guest is Nancy Hiller of Nancy Hiller Design. How's everybody doing?
0: Good evening.
2: Hi, it's actually N.R. Hiller Design Incorporated. Oh,
1: okay, I'll change that.
2: <laughs> no problem.
1: I, I, I figured it was just, well, is it just your initials? But, I mean, I guess the company it's is... It's N.R.
2: Hiller Design because when I first started the business, I was pretty sure that most people would not want to do business with a woman
1: woodworker.
0: Interesting.
1: So, N.R. Hiller Design Comma Space. Incorporated. Got it.
0: Can I hope, Nancy, that as you've built up a repertoire and a customer base, that that has proven not to be the case and that people are happy to work with you?
2: It's changed enormously. Well, good. Not just because of my work, but because of greater cultural trends.
0: Yeah. I'm going to assume that you've had a role in it as does anyone. You know, we're all little cogs, but you're another woman producing fantastic stuff just demonstrating that anyone can make this.
2: Or at least that the ability to make things is not dependent on gender.
0: (laughs) Certainly not.
1: Absolutely. All right, I have that corrected. We're good. So, now that we've got all this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the pleasantries uh, set out, uh, Diami, What's uh, what's been going on in your shop?
0: Um, trying to think. Over the weekend, I started a uh, a project down in our basement. We changed out some TVs, and I have to build. It's not technically going to be a built-in, but it's basically going to be the size of a built-in. It's about twelve foot longs so that take up an entire wall. Okay. Um. So I. I built the sub base for that. It's just a sub base made out of two by four. That's going to get a kick plate around it. And then the actual, I don't know what to call the cabinet, but it's going to have three shelves, four shelves of open cubbies, um, the full 12 foot width. And then that'll be like a countertop on top of that. And then above that, we'll go up two narrower cabinets on either side of the TV. Um, but I was only working on my design on Saturday and by Saturday evening, it was too late for me to get what I am going to make it out of in 12 foot lengths. So I didn't actually get much done over the weekend other than build the sub base. Um, but another thing I did actually get done is I managed to pick up some steel and, uh, you you can't look a gift horse in the mouth because I have a very good friend who last welded in 2003 and... Uh He was very happy to take my steel and, and weld it together for me. So I now have, and I'm looking across my shop, at the steel brackets I need to make the mobile base for my joiner.
1: Oh, yeah, that's okay. So I was watching, I think, were you putting that up on Instagram or? Yeah,
0: I, I took a couple pictures, actually. That's me holding it in his driveway because I was trying showing him how it all goes together. Um, okay. So those are the pictures that I I, I, uh, I grammed or Instagrammed or whatever, I shared. And then
1: with. whatever your, your little videos were, too, of- The cuts being made and turning your light out on the driveway. Yeah,
0: that was what I was doing out in the driveway at night was cutting it to length for him. And I cut it all to length that night and then realized, no, I want it to be bigger. So the next night I cut it all to length again at a scrap (laughs) because I had to buy a 10-foot length and I only need two pieces. They're now 22 inches long, so I I still have a bit of extra. Um, But I've used about twice as much metal as I should have because I decided to redo it. But what I realized is the joiner the base of the joiner where they're going to attach and for Nancy and other people who haven't seen it, it's, my joiner is parallel to the wall and I simply want to be able to pull it in and out from the wall. And I, I happen to have a Powermatic, but this is true of the Powermatic and every other commercially made mobile base for the joiner that I've seen is that they're designed to move it lengthwise. Now, yes. I can't rationalize a situation where I want to move my joiner Lengthwise, I want to push it up against the wall underneath the shelf and then when I need it, be able to easily pull it out 8-10 inches, use it, and push it back against the wall. I have a very narrow shop. So, to make the brackets, it's on the short end of the base, which is only about 18 inches wide. And then by the time I put casters on it, and if the casters are towed in, I could dramatically narrow the footprint of this thing, and it dawned to me that that would be really unstable. Um... So because on the back of the joiner, the, the mechanism that holds the fence projects out the back of the joiner by a few inches. Right. That limits how close to the wall I can push it. So I realized that I could make these brackets from the front of the joiner all the way to the back of that bracket. And if, if the, back of the, bra- the back of the bracket I make just flies out into space behind the body, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be bolted to the body of the of the joiner and it'll put the rear wheels that much further out. Yeah, so, a little wider
1: wider base. Exactly.
0: On. It'll be much wider. And the the front wheel will still be about even with where the front of the cabinet is now and the back wheel will be about three inches behind where the back of the cabinet is now. So I think it'll be about as stable as it is now. I'm putting on a wheel so I'm gonna lose some stability there, but I'm thinking it's gonna be much more stable than if I'd made it as narrow as possible. So that's why I made I made it twice. Um, yeah. but from
1: from what I can tell, at least the steel you're using looks thicker than what you can buy commercially or I guess at yeah, peach tree or wherever. Yeah, the
0: the, the steel pieces. that I'm using it's a combination of quarter inch and five eighths. Or yeah, three eighths rather, excuse me. It's quarter and three eighths. So it is commercially it's yeah, still I've thick. I've bought commercially. Um but it's yeah. it's it's certainly heavier than a commercial mobile base.
1: Yeah, those seem um, to be like stamped.
0: No, no, this is not, Jesus. this is not, this is all... Yeah, extended. yours is, your,
1: yeah. It's, so I mean, I only, I, my experience with my dad's six-inch jet joiner, he's mm-hmm. got a little mobile base on it, and that thing, you can, if you push on it, it'll flex. Like, it's that kind of lightweight. Right. It rolls right. It rolls fine, but again, like, the length of the bed's not the other way. I, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> but it, 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 they're just, they're not the strongest things. They can hold it fine, but they're they're not always uh, the best for moving around. And this way, like with that projecting out the back, you don't you don't have to ever worry about bashing that the the lever that holds your fence into the wall. Mm. You'll have it hit at the base. Actually, or, I, I do, mean, or it like like still a,
0: projects out. Yeah, the lever still does a little bit proud. Oh, okay. I can well, always just yeah. bolt a, a wooden stop to it. Um, what I've realized, and this is what I was saying about looking a gift horse in the mouth, is I don't know the first thing about welding. and my friend was really happy to take it to work, and he welded it during his break at work, Um, and it's great, but none of the pieces are straight. Mm. So um, I'm going to have to make... And because I was buying commercially available pieces and the sizing, I needed one leg to be longer than the other, and I have to buy them symmetrical, and there's a couple reasons why, but I'm going to have to build some wooden shims to make it work, but with just some half-inch plywood, I can... And these steel brackets i can make it all work and the plywood will just be shimming things it won't be carrying any weight um but it's going to be a little bit of futzing to make it fit exactly the way i want but that'll be fine um and ultimately this is i'm um, infinitely closer than i was just a couple weeks ago so i didn't do all that much towards it over the weekend except custom steel but um that's a project i'm, I'm very excited to have happen because i've had this joiner now. joiner has to be about two years, and mm-hmm. it's as tight to the wall as it can be while still being usable, but I can push it easily probably 14 inches closer to the wall to put it underneath the outfeed arm of my miter saw and just win that much shop space, and I'm very excited by that.
1: That's, yeah, ever the, the uh, uh, Tetris that your, <laughs> your shop tools are.
0: But what have you been up to, Sean?
1: Uh, it, it's, keep it simple, not much. <laughs> uh it they, the end of summer is is upon us so I it's been just busy running around crap I haven't gotten to do anything much of my
0: own uh, accord. Have you made any further progress on the extension?
1: Uh no um we have a builder I think coming out next week to talk it over with him. I need I need to print out my plans and then just I go over with somebody who's more adept to that and then that's eventually going to go to a drafting house somewhere to create an actual plan that can be submitted to the city
0: oh wow you're fancy
1: it's got to be done it's just a a symptom if i if i were to put up a shed in my backyard i'd have to get a permit Mm. yeah it's a i mean it's not that bad i you know i can i can have an open fire in my backyard but they're they're stingy on certain things and this is a substantial addition. I mean, mm-hmm. it's going to have to be recorded properly. And that brings us to Nancy. Uh, Nancy, you done anything on? you
0: need to uh, clear <laughs> oh, with the ahead. city, Nancy, or are you just actually having fun <laughs> building furniture?
2: Actually, my husband and I just um, added a small pantry onto our house. He did mm-hmm. it. He's a general contractor, and I'll hire. So him. So we're very familiar with. Um, <laughs> the necessity of obtaining permits even though we're in a rural location mm-hmm. we're in a county that has a very very healthy planning and zoning
1: department <laughs> yeah this in in so my case i
2: feel for you, you
1: no know, yeah the if it wasn't for the change in my roof line you wouldn't be able to see any of what we're doing but i am i'm adding about 800 square feet to the back of my house wow. and it's gonna extend my roof that's qu- excellent right. Yeah, it's a small house. That's it's it, it that actually almost doubles my house because it's small to begin with. But we're a family of four with two bedrooms and one bath, and so wow. we have room. It, we have room on on the property, but not in the house. So we're going to expand the house.
2: Well, good for you for living in such a small
0: space <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's doing all right.
0: Well, how old are your kids? It's not like you've only been doing this a week.
1: Oh no, no, no. Yeah, we've been here ten years. Um, they're now they're thirteen and ten. So, oh my gosh!
0: Well done. <laughs> well, thank
1: you. We make it work. They're they're you know, they're officially getting tired of the bunk bed because they share <laughs> like a little ten by twelve room. Uh, so we figure they'll get the separate rooms and we'll get a master suite and it'll be nice, and the bigger yeah. kitchen dining area.
0: Everyone yeah. wins. Everyone
1: wins, indeed. But no, seriously, Nancy. It's like what what you've had to be doing more fun things than me. At least I hope.
2: You might call it fun. I just call it what I do for work. So my latest job has been a um, surround and furnishings for an audio booth at a really cool mid-century modern church in Bloomington, Indiana, where I live. Um, The church was uh, built, I think, in the late 1950s. And um, so I designed the exterior of this structure to um, speak to, sort of echo, um, a glass and wood wall between the sanctuary, which is an enormous room that occupies the bulk of the square footage of the church, and an entry sort of reception area and it's built out of inch and a quarter thick solid cherry as a framework with custom veneered sequence matched cherry panels wow Um, and it's been a substantial commission for my shop which is a one person shop and I'm looking forward to finishing it soon (laughs) so that I can get paid and move on to the next
0: job. <laughs> that that sounds very impressive as a piece. Um, but to touch on the last thing that popped in my head, it also seems like the kind of project where, as the builder, as the lone builder, you are emotionally finished with the project well before you're physically finished with the project.
2: Well, I see what you're talking about, but... Um when you say emotionally finished but no, I mean, I've been doing furniture and cabinet making for more than 35 years now and one of the things that I've learned because I've had to is how to pace myself. Um, it's not just emotionally it's a it's a more encompassing, broader sort of psychological, Pacing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move on primarily because in terms of my shop schedule, I'm past where I need to be. But that's partly because the job grew a little, the scope of the work. Okay. Changers are always good. Um, but actually, <laughs> if you're really talking about emotionally finished, I, I don't really get any kind of real separation from a job for a year or two after I have finished it and it's only then that I can come back and look at it and see it objectively and realize with a certain pleasure oh I made that instead <laughs> of just looking at it and thinking oh, I should have done that differently or that could have been better you really? know really so
0: that I on the one hand I absolutely understand that frustration with my own quality and I think this is true of most pe- woodworkers is that the things that are that we pay attention to and the things that we'll draw attention to are the flaws uh, to our right. own detriment. But right. I'm also of the kind where at the end of the day, I like to s- take a step back and look at whatever it is I just built and take pride in the fact that I just built it.
2: Absolutely. I okay. get it. <laughs> I get it. It just sometimes... Takes me longer. (laughs) Okay.
0: All right. Well, um, with that going on and hopefully wrapping up soon in in Nancy's shop, Sean, what's going on in uh, in the MWA? Well, you know what's next for us
1: Um, is uh, well, well, no, you don't. Uh, (laughs) We uh, we're going down to the Modern Woodworkers. No, we're going down to modern. (laughs) Woodworking in America,
0: you know <laughs> How also, about popular you know, woodworking not- in America.
1: Popular woodworking in America, not modern. You're right. Uh, popular woodworking in America, and but before, well, I guess before it officially starts after registration,
0: we're having our meetup. We are. Along- That'll be on Thursday evening.
1: Right on Thursday, the day of registration, uh, or I guess check-in. Uh, we and the Wood Talk guys are going to the Christian Moreland Brewing Company. At uh, sixteen twenty one Moore Street in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, that evening from about five till eight or as late as they'll have things us. Things are still going well, they'll have us. As late as We're, they'll have us. Yeah. And then and then we'll find someplace else where we'll, they'll have us. And uh, as always. Um, but those uh the links to to the event and the the brewery's website it will be in our show notes for everybody to check out. And if you're coming to WIA, I hope you can make it out and
0: uh, and see yeah, us. Should be a good time. We always have fun that first night. Oh yeah. And I have a, I have a sinking suspicion that we may actually be dealing with an editor this year who we can guilt into attending.
2: Yes. <laughs> I can't imagine who you're talking about.
1: <laughs> like I said, she she came out in uh, in Winston Salem. She came out. Late in the the evening, uh, or later, I guess, not super late, and met us at the one bar we were at. But
0: I don't know if it helps or hurts that we're at in our hometown. But
1: I don't know. Yeah, the call of home, I think, is a it's a, is a loud one. Yeah, it's strong.
0: But al- also going on. Yeah, what else is going on? That, well, wrapping up that weekend.
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's actually going on as of now, as we're recording here on the uh, the e- the late end of August. Um, the Dusty Life Bench Build Off is going on, um, and I guess I don't know how many people they're um, they're participating in that. But I did. I actually saw an email come across from uh, Chris from uh, Time Warp Tools. Yes, I saw that too. Yeah, and so he's even though they're sponsoring, he's even building a bench along with him. And he can't win any of the prizes, <laughs> <laughs> but that'll that'll be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, and if you go over to uh, the dot or just look for the Dusty Life podcast in your podcatcher of choice, uh, you can follow along with that. And the tools are all all fantastic, but they're just icing on the cake. I think it's just another thing to get people in the shop and uh, and build something fun. Oh, absolutely. That will be so. Oh, it's all good. To to get back to WIA for a minute, I believe uh, one of the people we're going to see at WIA is you, Nancy.
2: Yes, I'll be giving three presentations. Three presentations, um, couple on Saturday and one on Sunday. Um, the one, well, one of them. This is the part you edit out. The um, uh, one of them is going to be about English Arts and Crafts Furniture. I'm quite excited about that because it's something I've been interested in for many years. I lived in England for 16 years from the age of 12, and that's where I uh, learned woodworking to the extent that you learn it um, in any kind of class setting and not just by doing it. So... Part of the reason I'm excited about that talk is because it is also the subject of a book that I'm under contract to produce for Popular Woodworking for their book series. Oh, excellent. It'll be uh, forthcoming, I believe, in 2018, and it will include three very cool projects by English arts and crafts designers. The first one I'm going to be working on is... A sideboard, a really cool sideboard, and it's actually the next job in my shop, and I can't wait to get started on that. So that's one of the talks. And then another one will be about designing, building, and installing built in furniture and cabinetry, which is something I've been doing for most of my career as a woodworker, and about which I've written a number of articles. Uh, So that'll be interesting. It will be a challenge for me to try to compress a bunch of information that I would normally teach in a six-day class into a two-hour presentation. So I'm tearing my hair out a little on that. And then the third talk is something that Megan Fitzpatrick, the editor at Popular Woodworking Magazine, suggested after we worked together on an article that was the cover feature of last December's issue December 2015 it was a bookcase and she was intrigued let's say by the way that I decided to attach the bottom inside this bookcase it was an extremely simple method of attachment that allowed for the The carcass bottom to expand and contract with changes in humidity. Um, Hmm. Too much, really, for a phone or radio conversation, but (laughs) it was not the way you would normally see anyone doing this kind of thing in a woodworking magazine. Um, (laughs) So, and it, she asked why I was Attaching the bottom in that way, and I said, because I've put all kinds of crazy effort into the rest of the piece, and here I'm working alone on this cabinet, which is a really large, it's an unwieldy and very heavy cabinet made throughout of, it of solid white oak. And I'm working alone in my shop, and I just want a simple way, a simple and strong way of attaching the bottom that I can handle by myself once the basic cabinet has been assembled. So anyway, it was this um, cheap and cheerful, so to speak, method that intrigued her, and she suggested that I do a third presentation on tricks that professionals avail ourselves of daily, which we don't always share publicly Uh, Not because they're super tricky or special or proprietary, but because quite a few people would make fun of us. So that will be the third one. Things I have learned over my career that really make a lot of sense when you have to make your living doing something, but which might not be popular in the publishing world because a lot of people would just scoff at them.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's functionable, it's manageable, like you said, you know, to, to do as one person. That's, I, I like the, the, the title on the schedule says it's Tricks the Pros Don't Tell You. Right. So, yeah, that's... Uh,
2: but it's also things like all kinds of ways of repairing mistakes when you can't afford to rebuild the entire thing. There are so i mean that is there's a saying among woodworkers or at least among professional tradespeople, which is that anybody can make a piece of furniture, but it takes true skill to fix a mistake, and mm-hmm. that's a, I'm being very polite for <laughs> the sake of
1: your listeners
0: that is absolutely true, and uh, you can be they're woodworkers, they can handle it. Oh. No and that's
1: that's an idea that comes back more and more. I I, mean, I think you mentioned it last time we recorded. I forget in what context, but you know, the, it's the 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 best the best work or the, I guess being good at woodworking or being a good woodworker is not that you do it perfect every time, but it's that you learn from your mistakes.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And for the, I I'm I'm a couple weeks behind, but it seems to me that the last two or three episodes of 360 with 360 woodworking that's been a big focus of theirs Mm -hmm. is mistakes that they've encountered. And the fact that experience just brings you to new mistakes. It teaches you how to fix the old ones and brings you to new ones. There's always mistakes. It's just being able to move on past them. Absolutely.
1: I'm a, I'm looking forward to, to catching, although I need to, I need to skip out of the conference, unfortunately a little early. So I hope to, I hope to see something of your, of your, your, uh, your productions or Nancy?
2: Well, I hope to meet
1: you both. Oh, well, uh, will you be there Thursday and Friday? I
2: can't. I will come over to Ohio on Friday afternoon.
1: Okay. Uh, oh, we'll be there.
2: We'll find I you. I will not be joining you for beer. <laughs> you're fine.
1: No, and you You mentioned um, a little earlier, you are you in Bloomington, Indiana? Right.
2: So right, so that's just south of Indianapolis, right? not far.
1: Yeah, it's just... Just right down seventy, right? Just kind of straight across, and then down, or
2: pretty much. Yeah. Yes, that's one way of going.
1: I've no. been from Dayton to Bloomington before, so I yep. it's yep. not that far off. Yep. Oh, excellent. So, um, you your past, and I was reading up on your your bio on your website earlier today, um, and you mentioned it too that you you uh, you learned the the trade or the craft. In, in England, when you were over there, how how long, you, you moved there when you were 12, is that correct? It was
2: just before my 12th birth.
1: Okay, and then how long were you there before you came back to the United States?
2: It was 16 years. Okay. So I grew up there the rest of the time, to the mm-hmm. extent that one can say I ever grew up.
1: Well, you're a young adult by the time, yeah. You leave, you're nearly 30 and... That's it's, it's
0: growing up.
2: When I came back, yep, yeah, yep. yeah Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: is, this is getting tangential, and I apologize, but if I could ask, what brought you back?
2: <laughs> well, my mother and father split up, and that was what precipitated the move over there, and people always say, "Well, was your mother English?" You know, or did she? What was the, her connection to England? And there really wasn't one. Oh. Just where we ended up. Um, my oh, wow. grandparents had some friends who lived there, and we just ended up there. And it didn't hurt that they speak the same language.
0: No, no, uh, <laughs> no. The, the reason why so, it really piques my interest is my mother-in-law is Scottish and moved to the U.S. when she was twelve with her family. Uh, But my mother-in-law lived in the... My mother-in-law was the last of her parents and four other siblings to move back to Scotland. And my mother-in-law only went back to Scotland about three years ago. Um, Wow. Whereas most of them moved back to Scotland in the early 80s. Uh, So I just found it interesting why different people stayed. And ultimately, they all went home, but it it took a while. Well,
2: the reason I came back is because my sister moved back after quite a few years, and then my mother moved back to the States, and I was fine being over there, and I didn't think I would ever leave, but um, I was married there, and my husband and I got
3: divorced,
2: and... I kept working there, and uh, eventually, it's a long story, but eventually I just decided that I wanted to be on the same landmass as my mother and father and sister. Hmm. So, because it was really expensive to fly back to visit. and oh, I'm sure. Well, I can imagine. I missed my family, so I finally decided to move back.
1: Um, so, when you were over there, what... What got you into uh, the woodworking trade? I mean, did you did you go through a traditional apprenticeship, or um, or did you just start working in a cabinet shop and that created a career? I no. guess How did you go down that road?
2: No, I mean, what happened is, uh, to be honest, when I was a kid, when my sister and I were kids, my mother was the handy person in our house. She was the one who built us a playhouse and was always remodeling the interior of our house. And so at least it was good to have the example of her, a woman, using tools, but we were not brought up to use tools, and our dad um, worked in an office, so there wasn't any kind of real strong family connection, which there often is. Um, what happened is that I dropped out of college over there because I didn't see the point of going at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I just was getting whatever job I could, but I was making very little money, and my boyfriend and I wanted some furniture, and I just started cobbling things together without knowing anything about what I was doing, and it was all extremely crude, and my stepfather constantly made fun of me Mm. and told me I was useless, and one day he added, you should take a carpentry course, and uh, to spite him, I rode my bike over to the nearest vocational college, which had a woodworking shop and asked about a carpentry course. And the person in charge of the woodworking shop said, oh, I think you mean cabinet-making or furniture, after Mm. I explained what (laughs) I wanted to be able to build. (laughs) So I did a basic um, city and guilds of London training in what was called furniture craft. And it was a very different time. This was in 1980. When 1979 and 80, when the majority of the students in the class were actually employed by factories, because back then England still had a solid furniture making industry.
0: Okay. So these were professional furniture makers in a factory, not what we would think of as custom furniture builders.
2: Right. They were, except that they were kids they were, I mean, I was the odd person out, not only because I was female, but also because I had finished high school, started university, dropped out, and I was a few years older. The other kids, guys, were 16 and 17 years old. Oh, wow. So most of them had finished what's called O-level exams. That is the equivalent of junior high here, I guess, roughly speaking. Okay. And they were not going to do advanced level or A-level exams and go on to university. They were going into the trades. And so they had hired on at various factories, which were paying to have them take this traditional furniture training because they still thought it was worth having some of their workforce, especially people who were going to be managers or foremen, understand the basic principles of the craft, even if they were going to be working with industrial machinery most of the time and not handwork.
0: Okay. So they without realizing it, they were probably at the tail end of that group of people yep. who worked in a factory with we that. They did knowledge. not
2: know what was coming. Hmm. Right.
0: Now, did you then end up in the same type of factory, or what did you do once you had the training?
2: No, I mean, I had this completely naive fantasy that I would finish my basic training there and open up my own shop and have people just coming to order things from me. And what happened is, it's it's kind of a long story, but I put an ad in the local paper saying that I was looking for a workshop, preferably with a place where I could live on site because I wanted a break from my live-in relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, the person who answered my ad turned out, it was very sneaky and clever on his part, but it turned out that the workshop and living space he had available to rent to me were part of his business and basically to cut a long story short he acquired me as an employee instead of me starting my own business so I was his first full time employee and um, and and it was an excellent learning experience for me he specialized in what were called old pine kitchens at the time. They were not made of old pine, but they were made to look old. And uh-huh. he actually was not a woodworker by training. He was a graduate of the Slade School of Art and a painter, you know, a fine arts mm-hmm. painter. But he had decided that it was more realistic to try to make a living through woodworking than <laughs> Fine arts painting. That's all
0: the same conclusion we've all made.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, he was he is an extremely good business person and a brilliant designer and I learned a lot from him about proportion and materials as okay. well as kitchen design and design in general.
0: So the the fine art background, even not making paintings per se, played a big role in designing appropriate kitchens with proportions and the things that don't necessarily come naturally to somebody who only knows how to make joints properly.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, the other person I credit with that kind of sensibility is my mother, who also went through fine arts training, and um, I've just absorbed a ton from her over the years about proportion and form.
0: Okay, so you're working in the cabinet shop at that point do you realize you know what all the family's gone home let me go after them or do did you, did you have no a no
2: that was many years later um no I worked in that cabinet shop for maybe a couple of years and uh by which time I had graduated from what my then employer called my romantic honeymoon <laughs> and I, I just was completely convinced that I did not want to be a woodworker. Oh. So I went and worked in an office. It was a great, great antidote. But um, it didn't last that long. And before very long, I was back in woodworking in a different shop, doing different sorts of work. And that, too, was an excellent learning experience because... In the second woodworking shop where I worked in England, um, it was a shop that did a lot more traditional work. So I actually got to make things using the kind of hand-cut joinery and hand-finishing skills that I had learned in my training, which I was not allowed to utilize in my first job. So that was a great Experience, but again, culturally, not an easy fit. It was mm. a um, this was a very different time. It was the mid nineteen eighties in rural England, and this was not the art furniture world. <laughs> it was mm. the trades and um, male chauvinism. There, you know, that was the prevailing culture. And um, so it was challenging for me, and I put up with it. And some people from outside looking in might have thought I was thriving, but I was not thriving. It was quite challenging <laughs> I, <laughs> I can
0: only imagine what that would have been like culturally, and certainly not easy. And I have to give you all the credit in the world just for surviving in that. I mean, how... Just, oh, just being there and, you know, and doing it is, is an accomplishment on its own. Forget about thriving.
2: Yeah, well, it was, again, character forming. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot of funny stories to tell as a result. <laughs> oh, that. <bad.
1: laughs> no, I, I applaud you being able to stick through it and, and and, I mean, proving that you can be successful. It's awesome.
0: <laughs> now, was it... Those years working making uh, old-fashioned kitchens and um, and furniture that motivated you to want to ultimately start your own shop, or was was the shop no. more okay? Then take us not no, necessarily I mean, how you got to the U.S., but how did you get to the point of wanting to open up your own business?
2: It wasn't a question of wanting it. My history, until the last few years, my history as a woodworker has been much more a case of uh, being dragged, kicking, and screaming by necessity. Um, And it's not what most people think of. You know, when people think of, oh my gosh, how great you make furniture. (laughs) I have... For me, it's been a struggle existentially, let me put it that way. And Mm -hmm. it's partly because, or maybe largely because, it's been something I've done for a living. Had I been doing it for, you know, on my own, what might be called my own terms Mm -hmm. as a hobby, it would have been very different. But uh, putting yourself out there and uh, totally, you know... (laughs) doing something as your livelihood, something where you are working by yourself a lot of the time, um, is quite, actually it's not challenging for some people. Some people have the kind of ego that is perfect for that situation. I don't. So it has been a challenge, and it's been in its own right a big learning experience, one that I'm glad I've stuck with. But um, the reason I opened my own business eventually is simply because in my last main attempt to escape what appeared to be my fate as a woodworker, I went back to college and got a degree and then got a master's degree and I thought I would teach um, at the university level, go on and get a doctorate and teach, but I decided I didn't want to deal with the realities of faculty life and the world of publish or perish Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and so I tried to get just a job, any kind of office job, I thought I'd be happy working with people and I would just try to get an office job which I ought to be able to do, I figured now that I had a degree Mm
3: -hmm.
2: which is a lot more important in America than it was in England, there were lots of people all over the place who didn't have degrees there But um, I couldn't get a job. I spent four months trying to get hired, and by that time I was in my mid-30s, and my resume included many years of professional woodworking, and by that time a sort of parallel academic career in classical languages and religious studies. So it looked like I was, you know, I was not the kind of person most people would find it like a natural hire.
0: I don't know. That and, sounds right up Megan's alley.
2: Well, <laughs> Megan, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right but, place, right time. Um, <laughs> so, not not here in Bloomington, no. <laughs> so, I was desperate for an income, literally desperate to make some money and I had my tools and mm-hmm. I had a few basic machines and I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you what I actually said because it, you know, again, <laughs> I won't give you the exact wording <laughs> mm-hmm. but I was like, yeah, okay, I'm just going back to doing what I know how to do and so at first, I thought maybe I would have more fun or at least a better chance of making a living if I did more general remodeling rather than just woodworking because I figured there would be a bigger market available. Mm -hmm. So I literally just picked up the phone one day and called the guy who owned a house that I had shared with another graduate student. Um, And I knew that the house needed some work. And I called him up and said, I'd be willing to work for you for 12 bucks an hour plus materials at my cost just so I can improve my skills. And he gave me my first remodeling job. And um, that was how I started my business at the beginning, but I very quickly gravitated back into what I really knew, which is furniture and cabinet making, and have stuck with it. That was 21 years ago now. And... um, It's really been a process of learning to love what I do in a whole different way because it really is what my livelihood depends on, and you have to make peace with whatever you do full-time, you know?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) It isn't
2: always just fun, and there are challenges of all kinds, um, not least among them certain customers. (laughs) So, so, it's been a good, it's turned out to be a good thing for me to have done, psychologically and emotionally, I think. Um, If not financially, I've never made a bunch of money, but I've been okay. It, It
0: sounds like it has paid the bills, which all those other things never did.
2: Um. Some of the other things did pay the bills, but I would have gone completely insane had I kept doing them. Or maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe, maybe if I had just stayed at an office and done woodworking in my spare time, that would have been ideal. It's certainly a great way to be a woodworker is to not depend on it for living. <laughs> you mm. have a lot more freedom in many oh,
1: respects. There's a there's some wisdom in that statement for sure. So, um learning the trade, I guess did your did your education at all continue once you came over here or were you fully in business mode? You know, you had you know what you had learned over the seas overseas and then you you kind of just brought all that here and that's how you worked no you always are learning you're always learning from other people
2: even if you're not in formal training and so the first job i had when i returned to the states was at a company in vermont that made office furniture architect designed office furniture for um Primarily for financial offices in Boston and New York. And um, I learned a number of other techniques there. Um, So, for example, I had never even... Everything we made in England at every shop I worked at, it was all traditional mortise and tenon joinery inset doors, traditional butt hinges, non-adjustable butt hinges, you know. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this business where I worked in Vermont, um, all the doors were full overlay with very um, perfect margins, as I said, architect design, Mm -hmm. Um, three thirty-seconds of an inch of an inch margins between everything and even though it was full overlay that still takes some doing and especially more doing when as we were there you were dealing with um, beautifully and expensively veneered medium density fiberboard, which kind of killed me because I had never used it before <laughs> but
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's a whole other set of skills and so I had to learn to use, it's kind of uh, ironic, really, that it was only in America that I had to learn to use so-called European hardware, like <laughs> European-style hinges. Um, but that is the way it was. And so um, I learned, in fact, the carcass floor attachment technique that... M- Sparked Megan to ask me to do this tricks the pros don't tell you presentation at woodworking in America is based on it's a sort of um, modification of one of the techniques that I learned at this shop in Vermont. In that case, it was a way of attaching drawer faces so mm-hmm. to a drawer box which I don't remember doing in England. I just remember (laughs) integral drawer faces that were part of a dovetailed drawer box. So, But it was a long time ago, so who knows? (laughs) So my point is, um, every job where I've worked, every shop I've worked at, I've learned new things. And even... Several years ago, I had an employee come and work in my shop for a couple of years, and he was wonderful. And when he first started working for me, I was teaching him a lot, and not but, as we went along, he taught me a lot. He taught me a whole different way of making tenons on the table saw than anything I had ever known, because in England... Every shop I worked at had a tenoning machine. It was a dedicated tenoning machine. Right. But um, here, people, every shop I've worked at has done tenons, if they were traditional-looking tenons, um, on a table saw. Well, Daniel taught me a new way of doing things there. So, again, you learn from everyone. I learn new things from carpenters I work with on job sites. But I think that you're really asking about formal training. And since I came back, honestly, most of the time, I can't afford to take the time away from work to do formal training, let alone the cost of classes. But a couple of years ago or a few years ago, I did take time out to spend a week doing a class with Mary May on basic wood carving. I had already done some wood carving, just self-taught. But I really wanted to get some insight into the, I'll just call it the right way. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, I guess what works, works. But there are efficiencies and basic principles that you can learn from someone who is highly proficient in his or her craft. And Mary May is an outstanding teacher of carving. So that was well worth the cost in time and money to take that class. And um, I do envy people who can take the time to take regular woodworking classes because it's fun as well as educational.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not at all required. I think what you've done has been enormous, obviously, You've developed your skills, and that was it. it wasn't so much, you know, formal training. It, it was, you know, it was more of like how how has all that influenced you? I've got this this notion in my head that you know, it's especially a couple decades ago in the, in the eighties, that there were still uh, guilds and trades that you went through, and there was this kind of more traditional thing that's in England that isn't necessarily as readily available here in the United States that. Could have formed you in some way, but knowing that you've come here now and you got to learn new techniques with new materials, and I'm ass- I'm kind of I'm assuming in a way that all of that together is now what's made you and your 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 company and and your work now what's made it successful.
2: Well, that and sheer perseverance, <laughs> <laughs> stubbornness. <laughs> Which, which is a, you know, the desperation to get paid so that I can pay my bills.
0: Right. Tho- I tell you, those are the ingredients of any good business owner, regardless of, of field. No,
2: I absolutely agree with you. And by the way, I have to point out that the 80s were not a couple of decades ago. So you're showing your age, however hey, old you are.
1: No, I mean, and I'm really I'm nearly forty, but I'm a few decades old.
2: Nearly forty, <laughs> you're a
1: child. <laughs> See, younger than me. Oh wait, no, older than me by a few weeks. Are we? I,
0: I, we're about this. I'm to not going to get into this argument. I'm just going to say that Chris is the old man. Um,
1: <laughs> Chris, Chris is
0: old. That that being said, um, I want to ask you about what you build versus what you might want to build before we wrap this up, Nancy. um, I was introduced to your work through Popular Woodworking. And from what I've seen on your portfolio on your website and from the pieces I've read, you kind of, your built-in seem to kind of go to where the customer takes them. Um, But it seems that, it seems that you're preferring arts and crafts. Is, is that, in fact, the style you most like? What style, if, if you had a carte blanche to build what you wanted to build versus what someone's willing to buy, what would you want to build? What style?
2: You know, honestly, this is going to sound like a cop-out probably, but it isn't. I think part of the reason I have survived psychologically doing what I do the way I do it is because I've really learned to want to build what I need to build. It's something that my favorite philosopher, Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian ethicist calls second-order desire. That is, Mm -hmm. you don't just want, you want to want something. So I want to want to build what I need to build or what I should build. And so, yes, I love English arts and crafts. I just especially the work of this manufacturer. It wasn't a craftsman. It was a manufacturer that um, did gorgeous arts and crafts style pieces around the turn of the 20th century. The company's name is Harris Libus.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um And it's not well known in America, although it's much more well known in England because there's a lot of its... Co- of its company's wares around antique shops and in people's homes, because it was an enormous manufacturer. But around from 1901 or so, for about 10 to 15 years, this company employed a really brilliant designer, and his name escapes me right now. But he designed pieces for the company to mass-produce, That really are, um, I mean, they draw on some of the great English arts and crafts designers' kinds of styles. Uh, And I've been intrigued by that particular company's designs, especially. And it's partly because I have a streak of, now I can't think of the word, Uh, I like to... It's sort of like championing an underdog because especially when you talk about arts and crafts, people get all romantic and idealistic and talk about everything so perfect and so <laughs> pure and everything done by hand to the best of one's ability. And yeah, all of that is great. And I you know, I am all for that. But one thing I love about this um, company is that it was actually producing work For people of lesser means, it was affordable to people who weren't just wealthy enough to pay for supremely, beautifully handcrafted work that was custom one-off work. And so iconoclastic is sort of one of the words I would use for the reason I love this company's work. Mm -hmm. Um, But, so yes, if I do have... If I have to if you're going to force me to say what I would like to build or what I really want to build some of the time at least that would be at work in this style but to be honest I kind of have a short attention span which is why doing having to do what I do is good because it forces me to stick with things Okay and so if I just were left to my own devices to do whatever I just wanted to do, there's pretty good chance that I wouldn't finish most of what I started. And I would get bored. I'd be like, okay, I'm done with this style. <laughs> I'm moving on to another one. So <sighs>
0: I hope that answers your question. So you, you're intrigued and respect and like this company's and this particular designer's Arch and craft, but ultimately, you're motivated by building pieces for customers, and this letting the cu- stop letting the customer dictate the style keeps things fresh. And what you want is to want to build, so you want to build what they're interested in. Did I?
2: Pretty I- much, and it's not just that I want to build whatever anybody wants. I mean, part of the deal is I've done whenever I have had a chance to do a spec piece, I've done something that really appealed to me strongly, such mm-hmm. as the first piece I did that was published in Fine Woodworking magazine, which was an English Arts and Crafts hall stand. And And the idea of that is, okay, I'll build this, and then I'll show people that I've built this thing that I really love, and that will, in principle, help me to make a name for doing a kind of work that I really love. Mm -hmm. So hopefully people will hire me to do that kind of work. So it's not like I'm just happy to blow in the wind. I mean, I am trying to have some say in the type of work I get hired to do. So I have certainly worked hard to cultivate a sort of niche, but at the same time, because It's easy for me to get bored if I'm just working in one style all the time. Mm -hmm. That makes it all the more fun when someone says, will you do this mid-century style buffet or dining table or whatever? Because the stuff on my website is a tiny, tiny fraction of my work because I only want to have photos on there that are reasonably decent photos, which usually means they're professionally done and right. there's only so much of that that I can afford. So there I work in all kinds of styles, but the older styles are more appealing to me and and when I say older I'm including mid-century modern in that.
3: Okay. And from right.
1: what I see on your website that it's all fantastic. It you know do you find is your customer base local to you or are you are you just I mean are you able to get it out to the the ends of the country or or wherever?
2: Most of my clients are local or they're regional. So, Bloomington, Indianapolis, Chicago. Um, I've had. A few jobs that came via my website, where I mean, a couple in Washington, D.C., and one in Chicago that were just totally unrelated. It was just people had found my website via a Google search, and they ended up hiring me. I mean, I think a lot of the time, the stuff on a person's website gets taken to the local shop. Mm -hmm. You know, I think prospective customers just see stuff and they take it to their local guy and they're like, can you make me one of these? And in many cases, people can. But the things that end up being really specialized for me are actually kitchens and built-ins because some people see beyond just, the thing that they're seeing on the screen, they say, "Oh, I." They have some insight into how I've thought through what my client needed and and what my client wanted and what would work with my client's home, and what they're hiring more, me for. In that case, is not just. As a cabinet maker, but as a person who is really going to listen to what they need and really be sensitive to the architectural details of their house or the history of their house and somehow meld um, historic fabric and style with contemporary function
3: mm-hmm.
2: while also, they hope, being a decent person to do business with and those are always really fascinating customers because they're usually <laughs> quite eccentric and <laughs> super mad about their home which i love i totally appreciate that so we tend to get along really well
0: now does that become a struggle because for a customer like that you need to be able to reach their home i mean does that does that limit the availability of customers like that or are you just willing to, to travel and if it takes you an hour or two to get to their home you you go there you visit with them you take a couple of measurements you go back you spend what it takes to build it and then you just go back for the installation
2: no over the years I've developed I mean when I'm talking about Washington D.C. or Chicago I'm not talking about driving an hour up the road you know obviously especially yeah. in the case of D.C. I have developed a sort of protocol for how I deal with that. And I try to get as much information down up front on the phone, the first phone call. I mean, and if they contact me by email the first time, I'll arrange to talk by phone just so that we can get to know each other a little. And honestly, the first two questions involve their preferred schedule or their hoped for schedule, okay? timeline and the budget. Because if I can't work within their schedule or their budget, we're not going to be able to work together cuz I can't, you know, it's just and so the first thing is is this even worth discussing, much as I would just love to discuss it with you, you know, with no constraints, but we live in a world of constraints. So those are my first things. And once we got through those, if it looks like those are, we check those off the list then I move on to, okay, so send me some photos of your home, send me any photos or direct me to websites that have things that really appeal to you and we'll talk and I'll, You know, try to get a little more information and usually not a lot. I don't put a lot of time in because I can't afford to before I write up some kind of design contract. And so in a lot of these jobs, I'm working in a two-phase contract, the first being a design contract and the second being the build and the installation. And that's just the way it works. It has proved to work very well for me for long-distance jobs um, and has worked well for my clients as well. And I think key to this whole process is just being very upfront in terms of communication and um, just being very clear Mm. about what I can and cannot do and what I need to charge, and that is one of the biggest things I've had to learn over the years, but you know, again, uh, necessity is a great taskmaster, <laughs> <laughs> and the great motivation for learning these lessons and trying to come up with ways of doing business that are um, feasible and and benign for both me and my clients. So I do my best.
0: I want to touch on something you said. I want to rephrase it a little bit, but I think that what you're talking about with all that communication is managing customer expectations is absolutely critical because you want to make sure that you're understanding what what they want, but even more importantly is that they understand what you're providing and that it's a fit that works.
2: Absolutely. Yep. And so I I do put a lot of this in writing um, and and I have had a couple of customers who complain about the length of my emails but <laughs> it's like dude I'm trying to make sure we're on the same page and
3: yeah.
2: if you want to work with me you don't just get to do that by paying me you also have to read the emails and do your part of this you know, I'm putting a lot of effort into communicating by email or by phone or however. But the thing is, writing is great because it provides record for both parties.
0: Exactly, And that's
2: why I use email for this kind of thing. And, yeah, it might, for some people, ironically, it's usually the people who have doctorates who are reading all day <laughs> who find this onerous. But... You know, we each have responsibilities, and it's my responsibility to listen to them and communicate back to them what I think I'm hearing and also to tell them what I'm able to provide. And it's their responsibility to read what I'm giving them back and to let me know if that's correct or not. So, this is not a complaint. I'm just saying it's kind of funny in an ironic way that... People are like, what? You want me to read all this? I mean, we're not talking pages and pages. (laughs) Some people just seem to think that an email can only be 50 words long, I
0: guess. (laughs) No, I understand that. I am in sales myself, and managing customer expectation is the key to having a happy job.
2: It is. Good fences make good neighbors.
0: Yes, absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. Well, um, with that statement that I completely agree with, I'm sorry we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, Beyond coming out to popular woodworking in America 2016 in the greater Cincinnati area, the weekend of September 15th through the 18th. 16th through the 18th. Will you register on the 15th? 15th through the 18th. Um, Nancy, where can our listeners find out more about you if they're not going to be able to make it to WIA?
2: They can always check out my website at com.
0: All right, and I'm sure many of them will because uh, your pieces are absolutely beautiful, and I, I at least personally appreciate the, the diversity of them uh, as much as we talked about the different styles. When looking at some of the built-ins, um, They're they're an impressive lot beyond all the furniture. So thank you very much for coming on, Nancy. We really appreciate chatting with you. And uh, we look forward to doing the five questions.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Anytime. I know we had a couple of technical difficulties in the beginning, but I think this has worked out rather well.
2: Yeah, Skype. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Skype. It's probably our line.
0: I'm going to choose to blame your neighbors. Yes.
2: Oh, the neighbors,
1: right. I yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> Them binging on Netflix, whatever, it caused the issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sean, we actually, unlike most times, we actually have our next guest lined up, don't we?
1: We do. We and who's do. our next guest going to be? Our next guest is another somebody who you could see at Woodworking in America, if you're able to come. By He goes by the name Alf Sharp. You may have heard of him.
0: I, I have. Alf is, a, is a, Alf is an absolute hoot. <laughs> and I actually first heard of Alf from uh, our prior guest, uh, Carly Eisenberg. Um, I've had the pleasure of hanging out with Carly a couple times because she only lives a couple of states away. And um, I think it was actually on the podcast, but certainly in person. She has talked about what just a wonderful, wonderful, caring and sweet person that Alf is. Uh, he and his wife play a major role in... Crap. <laughs> in the furniture society I'm blanking on the name of the organization
2: Society of American Period? Uh, no. Period Furniture Makers. He's not
0: That's that not home. the group I'm thinking of. Really? Uh, yeah, no, he's not from It's it's the period it's excuse me, it's not the period furniture makers. It is the Studio Furniture People and I'm oh. blanking on the name of their organization for which I sincerely apologize because I think it is just the Furniture Society but I could have that yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yeah, just furniture the Furniture Society. society. Okay. Jim Tolpin has talked about them also. When we had him on last year or two years ago, he was about to have their annual meeting at his school up in Washington. Um, They're a a fantastic organization, and Alf and his wife play a major role in running the organization. Uh, So anyway, I've gone off a little bit, but um, (laughs) Alf should be a very good guest, and we look forward to speaking with him on the next episode. Um, And with that... We have, uh, for anyone who may have missed the last episode, we have introduced a fortnightly beer choice because when you're done in the shop and just talking with other woodworkers, why not enjoy a libation? hmm And, Sean, I believe you have uh, a recommendation.
1: I do. I do. Tonight is, a, is a, a favorite of mine. It's an annual... I think it's, it's only out this year, but uh, Anderson Valley's Briny Melon goes uh, a delicious, sessionable... Slightly
0: sour ale, fantastic. It's, it's it's a ghost. It's slightly sour. Come on, it is. It's not that bad.
1: <laughs> that it's not but, that gozy. My wife can tolerate this one.
0: Well, that is the barometer by which I judge good beer. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. how about you, Dianni? What do you got? Um, I've got uh, what I uh, have uh, had tonight is the Long Trail Double Bag, which is Long Trail is a brewery up in Vermont. I. I, they're down in it's New more, York. I don't this is know. This more contraband of your uh, travels. No, no, no. This is I picked this up locally. Okay. Um, I've had them in Vermont, uh, but uh, I don't know how far out of the Northeast Long Trail gets. But I've um, never
1: seen it. Looking at their website, I've they never they're
0: never seen they're, they're the main product they make is Long Trail Ale, which is a, just a phenomenal ale. There's nothing. It's not an IPA. It's just a basic ale, but it's it's just a really good basic ale. And the double bag is a double alt beer, um, which features complex mold profiles, <laughs> and it is not so sessionable. Um, it's not particularly high, but so. it's uh, it's seven and a half percent. So, oh, that's, that's yeah, it's a, it's, all right. um, it's all right. But it is a it is quite a quite a good alt beer, and it has a nice a uh, nice subtle kick to it. So, that is what I'm choosing this week. Excellent. Um, and again, I know that. Uh, we got some interesting reactions to the fact that I mentioned that I had discussed this segment with Mary Jo Foley of Windows Weekly. But oh, for remember. anyone who might have been doubting, I do actually enjoy Windows. And, um, and I just want to thank Mary Jo for, uh, for talking <laughs> to me about this. So with that, um, we look forward to seeing everyone at Woodworking America. In 2016 in Covington, Kentucky, September 16th through the 18th, or if you're there the 15th, please come and hang out with us. You can find yes. more details about that on the Modern Woodworkers And with that, Sean, you want to bring us out?
1: Yep, and that just about wraps it up for this show. If you're missing us already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play Music. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. Once you've subscribed, you'll never miss a new exciting episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Or a four star rating or five stars what's what's the highest nowadays
0: it, it remains five
1: okay five star five star forget the four star five star
0: only <laughs> okay and uh, thanks for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association if you like the show be sure to visit modernwoodworkersassociation.com I can say that a little faster if I try Mm -hmm. Uh, you could follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national you could like the MWA on Facebook or circle Modern Woodworkers Association on Google Plus the best thing you can do is tell a friend word of mouth goes a long way in sharing our discussion so with that I am Diami Plotty of the Penultimate Wood Shop wishing you uh, safe and productive time in the shop
1: And I'm Sean Wisniewski of The Corner Workshop. And wishing you the same.